This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. 26 years after two hikers were viciously murdered in the Shenandoah National Park, a new book is examining the case and its focus on one man. Julie Williams and Lolly Winans were found dead in their campsite near Skyland back in June of 1996. The case has never been solved. News Force Paul Wagner has the story. The murders of Julie Williams and Lolly Winans is a deeply puzzling case. The two were found in their campsite, their throats slashed. At one point in 2002, the FBI said they had their man and filed charges against Daryl Rice. But two years later, those charges were dropped after DNA failed to link Rice to the crime. Rice became a suspect after he was found guilty of attacking a woman in the park. In a new book titled Trailed, journalist Catherine Miles examines virtually every aspect of the case against Rice and comes away perplexed. You know, the only evidence that the FBI has ever been able to really pin on Rice is this very short one minute phone call that he made to an LGBTQ um, support group in uh, California. He and his team claims that, that that was a missed dial on his part, that he was trying to call the Grateful Dead hotline. But that is literally the only thing. A reference to that center's director was found in Julie Williams' journal. In her book, Miles writes the FBI should take a much closer look at Richard Markovonitz, who investigators say killed the Lisk sisters in Spotsylvania County in 1997. Miles says hairs found at the Shenandoah crime scene were compared against Daryl Rice and Ivonitz. They tested them once. They ran it against both Daryl Rice and Mark Ivonitz. At that time, the FBI lab ruled out uh, Daryl Rice as the source of the hairs. At that time, mm -hmm. the FBI lab also determined that it could not rule out Ivonitz because Ivonitz matched in 799 out of 800 places in the DNA. But Miles says she can find no evidence in her reporting the FBI followed up. Avonitz died by suicide in 2002. Miles says she hopes that her book will eventually lead to a closure in the case. My hope is that the book will spark enough interest among readers and the general public that we can kind of force a conclusion so that, that those communities really can have at least some modicum of peace, knowing that they at least know who killed um, these two amazing people and why. The FBI in Richmond did not return two requests for comment. Paul Wagner, News 4. Daryl Rice is out of prison now. Through his attorney, he has denied any involvement in the murders of Julie Williams and Lolly Winans. Hey, lovely listeners, and welcome back to Crime Analysts and the Intelligence Cell. This week, I'm rejoined by Catherine Miles as we dive deeper into Lolly and Julie's case and the potential links with other murders of women in Virginia. Before we get into it, here's your content warning. We discuss multiple murders in graphic detail, and so listener discretion is advised. OK, let's get into part two with the amazing Catherine Miles. 
so far as I know, those cigarette butts and that beer can, the DNA gleaned from those has never been tested against DNA found at the scene. Which to me is just insane. You know, when you have forensics and things aren't being tested and, and we'll come back to that. So the, the scene itself wasn't processed for some time, was it? Can you just say a little bit about what happened? You mentioned, you know, the issue of jurisdictions and also about, you know, the FBI and their new rollout of their evidence recovery. But it was some time. There was a time delay in processing the scene. Right. So, again, the campsite was discovered at about, well, eight, not about 8.17 p.m. on Saturday, June 1st of 1996. At that point, there's some internal discussion among rangers about what to do. They know that the FBI has joint jurisdiction, but really the FBI takes the lead. So at that point, they call the FBI, they call the state police, and they call the medical examiner's office. Because this is such a remote area, it takes quite a long time for anyone to arrive. I think the first people on the scene are the Virginia State Police, several of them whom had worked a very recent and similar murder of a young woman named Alicia Showalter Reynolds, who was murdered just outside the park about eight weeks prior and whose body had just been found. So they were already very much in the the thick of that particular case. Then the FBI arrive around, we think about one or 2 a.m., but at that point, it's so dark, right? And it's so remote in this scene that that really all they can do is sort of a, a cursory attempt to secure the scene. And it's not until after sunrise the next morning, the 2nd of June, that any kind of evidence collection begins. And as both the FBI and the Park Service Rangers told me, there was a real sort of, um, you know, kind of spitting match, you know, fighting match over over how this was going to happen. Park Rangers wanted to examine the evidence at the park the FBI wanted to take it. And so there was there was quite a lot of confusion. In the end, they decided that what they were going to do was bag up the evidence into garbage bags, take it to a park ranger office and hang it to dry, which, you know, should give your readers just pause and make them kind of groan as they're as they're listening to this. Because what we now know from trace evidence is is undeniably multiple hair, skin cell, all sorts of other evidence was lost either in those bags or when when the evidence was hung to dry. And so that's really where this cascade begins to happen. The evidence response team and the park rangers try to use kind of emerging techniques for gleaning fingerprints and things. As a result, they dip the vibrator in super glue and render it sort of just defunct in terms of, right. And so again, what could have been linchpin evidence that could have ended this case was was all but lost. Now, that said, I still do believe there's quite a lot of, of trace evidence that can still be gleaned from the evidence that's still held in custody, particularly using new MVAC techniques and things like that. So I do think there's still very useful evidence. What was eventually gathered and sent to the FBI lab then follows now its own, I think, tragic course of events in terms of mistesting, misassigning of testing and things like that. And that's where you really start to see the breakdown of all, all of this. Yes, misassigning of testing, miscommunication, whatever it might be put down to. The fact remains that there are items like the cigarette butts and like the can that would, in my view, retain more significance because of the location, because of that being a little clearing area and it being so remote. And that's where you've got the vantage point of watching 
the two women, that assumes much more significance. Um, so certain items could be graded in terms of priority. It, it's really simple. We do that all the time in investigations. But with this one, there's just an alarming amount of, I don't even know if it's politics or lack of interest, apathy, or whatever it might be, but we're going to come on to that. So there are items that remain. Now, you did mention Alicia Showalter-Reynolds. Can we just talk about Alicia a little bit? Because this was 25 miles east, wasn't it, Alicia? And, and some people may have heard of the Route 29 stalker, and you talk about the Route 29 stalker. In fact, this case has come up multiple times for me in the last six months you know, who was this individual, question mark, again, Virginia, women being targeted. Can you just give a, a context and some background information on, on Alicia and what happened? Right. And let's do that by way of the Route 29 stalker, because we do believe those are connected, right? So sometime in, we think, late 1995, an individual or individual started patrolling Route 29, which at the time was very remote, very rural, and would have large stretches where there would be no housing developments or businesses or anything else. And this individual who was sort of marauding as a, a sort of good Samaritan would flag women down, telling them that there were sparks coming out of the back of their car and then say, oh, you know, the car's not safe to drive. It might explode, but let me get you to a service station. Some women were persuaded by this and, and were pulled over. Some women sort of rejected him or sometimes even, you know, were very sort of, you know, rebuffing in their rejection of it. And those women reported that the man would fly into a rage and drive off. He did take several women to a service station. They were not harmed, we should say. And then in March of 1996, Alicia Showalter Reynolds, again, very competent young woman, pursuing a PhD in pharmacology and studying tropical diseases, leaves her apartment in Baltimore to drive home to her family home in Charlottesville, where she and her mother were set to go shopping to buy dresses for her, her twin brother's upcoming wedding. She never arrived. This is before cell phones, so it wouldn't have been the case that she could have called anyway. But her car was found, as you say, about 20 miles outside the park with a paper napkin under the windshield, which was sort of a, a universal sign at the time that says, I know my car's had problems, I'm off dealing with it. She was never found. Her coat was found in one place near a town called Culpepper. Her, her wallet and credit cards were found in another place. But it wasn't until May that her body was found. Um, and she was she was buried in a very rural part of Virginia in the woods right outside of the park. We should say that at her car, was found cigarette butts and was found a pair of gloves the same size, male small, as the gloves found at Lolly and Julie's site. Now, again, as far as we know, DNA or hairs found from both pairs of gloves have never been compared to one another. I think there are some obvious similarities between these cases that they're certainly worth considering for, for a variety of reasons. But so far as we know, in part because Alicia's case is the purview of the Virginia State Police, the Shenandoah case is the purview of the federal government. There has not been a lot of crossover between these two. Yes, and we have to think about that time and the location and the victimology. Those things then start to narrow down into, is this the same perpetrator? And, and let's not forget what was said with Lolly and Julie, isolated incident. Well, they knew fully well that there was another case. Yes, there might be different jurisdictions, but we all know world, when cases like this happen, spreads like wildfire in the locality. 
people know because it's a rare, in inverted commas, event. So Alicia Showalter Reynolds, well, her body was found, I mean, badly decomposed body was found just shy of the river in, a, in another remote area, wasn't it? Can you just describe that a little bit? Right. So this is a very rural road in a tiny, and I can't even really use the word of town, I'll say hamlet named Lingham, which has a population of about 20, right? It doesn't, there's no town center. There's a post office that's a, a sort of double wide trailer, if you will, and two churches. And that's literally the extent of Lingnam. This is a, a gravel road, very rarely used. There was a, a school for sort of misguided youth at the very end of the road, but basically a, a narrow gravel road. Uh, quite a bit of logging was happening there. Um, and so someone not only knew to take her to this remote area, but also then managed to either manhandle her while she was alive or, or carry her body while she was dead a fair bit from, from where you would have been able to park and then, again, buried her her there. So, again, I think, you know, some, some similarities here in terms of subduing, in terms of what we believe was sexual assault based on, on, on her clothes. And then, again, this sort of rural hiding, which will also become important when we start talking about some of the other victims that occurred over this 18-month period, which again, all but one, this older woman, Thelma Scroggin, were found either bound in some kind of sleeping bag or blanket and tied up, all found you know, in very remote areas next to water, which I think may also be important as well too. And, and duct tape will also start to figure prominently in these cases as well. Yes. Yeah, so for comparative case analysis, these details are really important and you start to see some striking similarities. I mean, for me in my work, I'm always looking for what's different too. You know, that's the the analysis of the omission of something. But on the face of it, all of the details and, and the victimology and the geography and the proximity, you start to have to question what's the chances of there being two or three serial killers all operating in the same place, particularly when we locate in Virginia. I think it was a 20-year period, 1974 to 1994, there were 10 murders. And yet in six months, there were six women murdered. I mean, that in of it itself on the timeline is significant and must not be overlooked. It, it really is alarming that, you know, hearing about this now, that it seems that little join-up coordination, little priority was given to women being abducted, being killed, being brutally murdered, quite frankly. So, you know, we know that the rangers who found Alicia's body, well, they had not worked violent crime before. So we're, there's also a challenge around that, that we'll talk about, well, let's talk about the National Park Service. I mean, with Gabby Petito, I've been deconstructing the case. I'm on part 20. It always struck me when I watched the body cam footage, just about the rangers in particular, who didn't really seem to have a role there. I mean, it was Moab City Police who took the lead, but two parks rangers were there. They had body-worn cameras on both of them and the National Park Service have refused to release that. They've refused to cooperate uh, with the review of Gabby's case, which 
was striking to me. I mean, this is in 2021, 2022, of a lack of cooperation, which made me start to think about the National Park Service. I have trained Yosemite rangers, and it did start to make me think about them and their level of competency, how they are trained and trained by whom, and also their level of accountability. And, you know, competence comes into it in terms of investigations, You detail it quite well in your book and alarming, actually, (laughs) alarming to me, the the things that you discovered, even in terms of just data systems, there being a lack of, but much more the onus is on protecting their image and not collecting data on on violent crime and not having any competence or I I shouldn't say any, but not having competence, and particularly when we go back in time. Um, But I did witness it for myself on the body-worn camera footage, which led me to ask all sorts of questions. So can you just say a little bit more about what you discovered of the National Park Service who are going out to cases, who are interacting with victims? Um, What did you find out? Absolutely. And and I should say, I think most rangers are law-abiding, dutiful, social, you know, and civil servants, right? We should say that absolutely. However, there are two things happening simultaneously here. Since the formation of the national park system, the Department of the Interior has woefully underfunded it. We have something like a $6 billion deficit for our national parks right now. That includes maintenance. That also includes hiring rangers, training rangers, equipping rangers with working radios, guns, and things like that. So even the most, I think, dutiful, well-meaning, hardworking ranger is really hemmed in because they are so short-staffed, under-trained, under-equipped, you know, and, and, and especially if we're looking at maybe border parks, for instance, they are dealing with drug cartels who, you know, are equipped to a level that I think rivals some country militaries, right? And so, so they're just outmanned, outgunned. What's also happening in addition to that, as you mentioned, is twofold. First, there's this, there's a lack of codification in terms of how crime and missing people are reported in parks. That's left to the purview of each national park. And so whether or not a crime or a missing person even gets reported remains very much a question, I think. And then we have this this kind of blue wall phenomenon, which as one whistleblower compared it to me, rivals the church sex abuse scandal that we saw in New England in the 1980s and 1990s, where bad actors who are law enforcement rangers, um, and we should say there are two types of rangers, interpretive rangers and law enforcement rangers. Law enforcement rangers have all of the rights and privileges of a state police officer, basically. So these, there are, there are, there is this subset of law enforcement rangers who are bad actors, who were in some cases found peeping on female victims. In some cases, were found guilty of crimes. In some cases, were found grossly overexerting their authority. And instead of being reprimanded, they were transferred to other parks and in some cases promoted. And that's a case that while the Government Accountability Office, while the investigative general for the Department of the Interior has kind of raised some pretty big warning flags about that, particularly after the sexual abuse scandal that, uh, that was recently surfaced at the Grand Canyon, very little has been done to go in and really investigate and correct this this culture of protecting one's own, even in the name of protecting crime. Calling all lovers of mystery. Prepare to don your detective hat in June's Journey, a free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. 
Take a trip in time to the glitzy 20s and play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. The thrill is endless with new chapters added weekly, allowing you to not only enjoy the detective adventure, but also to personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Hey, lovely. What's your makeup go-to? What do you need to face the day? Now, for me, if I apply my eyeliner, my brilliant eye brightener, mascara and red lipstick, I feel ready to face anything. But I know every now and again, I need to zhuzh up my makeup. And my amazing sponsor, Thrive Cosmetics, has a full line of makeup to refresh your everyday look. With clean, skin-loving ingredients, their foolproof products make it easy for any skill level to apply. Also, Thrive Cosmetics' Bigger Than Beauty mission is amazing. For every product purchased, Thrive Cosmetics donates products and funds to help communities thrive. I love that Thrive Cosmetics supports domestic violence victims, breast cancer survivors, and women who are homeless. Now, if you want to wreck from me, you cannot go wrong with the Liquid Lash Extensions Mascara. Thrive Cosmetics Liquid Lash Extensions Mascara has a unique formula which creates tubes around each eyelash to lengthen them. And they use nourishing ingredients that support longer, stronger, and healthier looking lashes over time. Plus, it's super easy to remove and slides right off with warm water and doesn't leave smudges. So treat yourself or someone you love and help women thrive together. Refresh your everyday look with Thrive Cosmetics, luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 10% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com slash crimeanalyst. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S dot com slash crime analyst for 10% off your first order. Yes. You know, for me, you've been overly generous. I can understand why you would be, but I have no sympathy or empathy when it comes to National Park Service recruiting people with a history of violence against women and girls. I have no time for that whatsoever. And that's one of the things, yes, competence and getting the right training and being trained by experts, that does take time. And when you're, um, you know, expanding and when you're not in, an investigator, you know, those things do take time to develop skills. So I have sympathy and empathy for that. But you talk specifically about, you know, recruitment day for the National Park Service. Well, one of their best hiring days was when the nearby prison releases their inmates, which just absolutely disgusting me, quite frankly. I mean, you know, and those with histories of violence against women and girls and you're recruiting them. And then there are women and girls who are camping, you know, and using the trails. That is just unconscionable for me. That is absolutely disgraceful. That tells me the level of priority that's afforded and the level of understanding, which is zero um, and the level of misogyny, actually, because it's an acceptance. It's a cultural acceptance that that violence against women and girls is okay if you're recruiting people into a badge 
and uh, uniform wearing position because that abuse of trust, that alone, when I first talked with Bill Thomas about Kathy and, and Becky Dowski, and we'll talk about them specifically, you know, one of the things given the, the similarities and Kathy and Becky were both very competent, athletic women was, well, how did this individual gain their confidence or trust? How did that transaction happen? Was it by use of a gun? Which, yes, it could well have been before he killed them. But it equally might have been, given that Kathy was in the Navy, someone wearing a uniform, you're much more likely to respect that person in a uniform. And particularly on, you know, if you're in the colonial parkways, you're in a state park, etc., you're likely to pay attention to a ranger or someone in that position of trust. And that, for me, is why it's unconscionable. And we should say that four of the law enforcement rangers who worked Kathy and Becky's case were transferred to Shenandoah and the law enforcement rangers in Shenandoah in 1996. And some people, including the FBI, have really speculated that one or more of these rangers might be involved. They were, two of them were the original suspects for the FBI that summer of 1996. Just this past summer, the FBI sort of revisited that and went so far as to take DNA swabs from some of these rangers to see if there could be a comparison. So I think that that argument, you know, certainly holds weight for some federal law enforcement people involved in the case. Yes, and I say that as ex-Metropolitan Police and having worked at New Scotland Yard when we recently had a murder of a young woman called Sarah Everard who was murdered by a Metropolitan Police officer, a serving officer who used his warrant card, who used his uniform to coerce her into his vehicle before he raped her and killed her. So now within the Met, within New Scotland Yard, there's a huge drive around, you know, misogyny, rooting out those sorts of individuals, which, quite frankly, we all knew were there and have not been dealt with. But when you're in a position of trust with a badge and a uniform, it, it changes the dynamic. So it is really important because most people think public protection. You think about the paedophiles, sex offenders, you know, murderers who may be around you. And we know that there are those individuals in parks. But you don't necessarily think about that when you see someone in a uniform and you trust and you pay attention, as I said, to, to what they're saying and what they're doing. You lift the lid on that. And for me, there has to be a zero tolerance. This is absolutely where National Park Service and other law enforcement agencies must have a very clear policy that there is zero tolerance around recruiting individuals with a history of violence against women and girls. And if you are violent in a domestic violence relationship, if you're violent to your partner, all of my analysis and my body of work at New Scotland Yard shows that if you're violent to your significant other, you are most likely going to be abusive, violent, and if you're sexually violent to your partner, you may well rape other people out of that significant relationship. Therefore, it is a public protection issue. And most people don't realise that. And the public deserves to know. We deserve to know what rate of, and obviously I understand there are hiring and human resource privacy issues here, but we deserve to know to what degree, for instance, law enforcement rangers police officers, anyone else are in fact being found guilty of perpetrating violence and overstepping their authority. And, and I think that that's something that is part of the checks and balances that needs to really happen, especially to renew, I think, public faith in law enforcement officials. Absolutely. And that trust and confidence is really important. That's why statements, strong statements from leaders in law enforcement, it's necessary to, for us to hear that, but also for them to act on that and root out these people um, who are, 
you know, poacher turned gamekeeper. That's exactly why they're in those positions. And I've seen it across my career. Now, Kathy and Becky were 10 years prior to, they were targeted, they were violently and brutally murdered in very similar, to me, very similar circumstances, which, you know, now much more I'm digging into the case, um, I do believe is significant and the similarities must warrant linking those cases. And of course, Kathy and Becky, for those who don't know, their two horrific murders have been linked into what's known as the Colonial Parkway murders. And I have to say, Catherine, I am not convinced that that is part of the same series, actually. I am much more leaning towards having, you know, analysed the cases again and spoken to Bill Thomas, and I'm going to talk to him on Crime Analyst. I believe that they're much more likely linked, actually, to Lolly and um, Julie, which is what I said to you when we first started speaking. But I'm I'm now more convinced of their striking similarities. Um, and of course, there were other cases too. I know I'm taking up more of your time than what I anticipated, but you are a font of knowledge when it comes to these cases. Um, what's your view around Kathy and, and Becky and the links with Julie and Lolly? I go back and forth, and I should say Bill Thomas has been just incredibly generous and selfless friend to me and my research project. And I first contacted him out of the blue, and he very graciously invited me over to his house. And since then, he and I have spent countless hours unpacking the cases. Sometimes I think that the similarities are just too undeniable to be coincidental. Again, a young lesbian couple found on National Park Service land subdued, bound, gag. I'm sorry, I shouldn't say bound, um, but we do see some ligature marks on Becky and Kathy. I shouldn't overstate that case. Killed with a decisive slash to the neck, although there is some evidence that Kathy and Becky were first choked and then the slice to the neck occurs. Then stuffed, in this case, in Becky and Kathy's case, into a car and then again hidden, pushed over um, a river ravine. Those are all, I think, undeniable similarities. Again, when you also factor in the potential for either a law enforcement officer or someone acting as a law enforcement officer, those are all really quite coincidental. And as Bill always likes to point out to me too, both occurred on holiday, long holiday weekends. In the case of Becky and Kathy, it was Columbus Day weekend. And in the case of Lolly and Julie, Memorial Day weekend. So was the, does that mean that there was one person involved in both crimes? Does it mean that there was a potential copycat involved? I don't know the answer to those two things, but I do agree with you that the similarities are, are too noteworthy to be ignored, for sure. Yes, and they shouldn't be ignored. And, you know, it's about 200 miles away. Is that right, geographically speaking? Right. I couldn't say the exact mileage. It's it's a ways for sure. But again, both National Park Service land and certainly, you know, accessible via vehicle in both cases as well, too. And again, it's the sort of the thing with Becky and Kathy's case that really stands out to me also is how were they ever discovered? You know, I mean, this was a very remote part of the Colonial Parkway. Um, we think that they were at a picnic turnoff. Again, this, this was not well visited. It was not well traveled. The person, by all accounts, had equipment with him. This was not a spur of the moment idea. So again, just the, the finding of these victims alone is, is really terrifying to me. 
Yes. And the long weekend is important too, because going into a park, who are you going to come across? A long weekend probably means a few more people going off um, on trails. But although Kathy and Becky, it was a Thursday evening where they had organised to meet up to go out for food, but they would go to the uh, this beautiful spot on the Colonial Parkway. So for me, and we know that Kathy her injuries were more severe and and it sounds to me like she fought more. So again, when we sometimes see strangulation and then a, a knife being used, we know offenders learn and strangling two competent and athletic women to death, well, that takes a bit more time, particularly if you've got someone who is physically strong. Um, so it may well have been that that's what he started doing at that time and then decided to to use a weapon. And of course, we know that they learn their tradecraft as they continue. So that was 10 years prior. But the fact that they are two women, lone remote areas, that it looks like there was some form of restraint, that they were, both couples were uh, stabbed in the neck, effectively had their, were killed that way, actually. Um, it's important to say. And the level of planning because there has been planning in these events. It's been thought through. It's premeditated. They've gone out with murder in mind. Two lesbian couples, it can't be ignored. It really should not be ignored, but I believe that it that it has. And again, when we think about the forensics, simple things can tell us. Um, I know Bill feels very strongly about the hair that's in Kathy's, was found in Kathy's hand, that that should be tested. I think there were cigarette butts the cigarette butts in her car, neither women smoked, you know, and again, have, have those cigarette butts been compared to the cigarette butts in Lolly and Julie's case and Alicia Walter Reynolds's case? So far as we know, they have not. Yes. An offender like this just won't stop. They won't just stop of their own volition. There might be a hiatus, but they will continue. And so present day, it's still a public protection risk and families deserve to know. And not just these families. I mean, September 9th, Sophia Silver was abducted off of her porch. Can you just explain a little bit more about Sophia? And, you know, I would like to get to um, Anne Carolyn McDaniel and, and the Lisk sisters, because again, these aren't isolated incidents. Right. And this is this is largely the summer and fall immediately after Lolly and Julie were murdered. Where again, we start to see this this kind of circle of cases. And and we worked with a really talented cartographer and map maker to develop maps for the book. And I think the map that shows where each woman was murdered and found to me was a very chilling moment when I realized that there really did seem to be a geographical pattern happening here as well, too. I would love to see that, by the way. If if you have a, a version of it, I'd love to see I it. I can send that to you and we can we can post it too if you'd like so your your viewer, your listeners can see it as well too. But Thank Anne you. McDaniels, again, a young woman, physically looks very similar to Lolly and particularly Julie, presumably picked up online, we believe. Um, and her body again found in this very remote area of lignum, very close to where Alicia Showalter Reynolds's body was found duct tape used very prominently in that case, as it was in Lolly and Julie's case. Again, she was partially buried. She was also partially burned. You mentioned Sophia Silva, a young woman um, who was abducted off of her porch. 
found bound and gagged in a sleeping bag in a very remote area next to a stream. Similar with the Lisk sisters, we believe the elder Lisk sister was the primary target. It appears as if the younger Lisk sister was killed quite quickly with a very sort of decisive blow to her head. Um, And then we believe that the older Lisk sister was the primary target there as well. And then the outlying case, Thelma Scroggin, an, an elderly woman who lived in Ligham, who, again, is is easy to kind of rule out, except for two very interesting details. First of all, she was a rural mail carrier. So some people have asked, well, did she accidentally see something in these cases? Also, her truck was stolen. Was she somehow targeted because the vehicle was then used in other cases as well? We don't know. Of course, it could be that, that her case is unrelated. We're not sure. Yes. Well, to me, it sounds like it is related. And of course, we don't know all the nuanced detail. Did she see something or was there something, you know, that she had that he wanted and therefore it was just much more of a functional, it sounds awful to say, but a functional type of crime, whereas the others are much more expressive or about his fantasy base. Um, But you mentioned one of them being burned or... Anne McDaniels, right, who was also bound in duct tape. And and one of the things that's been fascinating to me is it was a very irregular size of duct tape that was used with Lolly and Julie, um, a kind of duct tape that's not commonly found in hardware stores or things like that. I have never been able to find anyone at the Virginia State Police who knows what size of duct tape was used on Anne McDaniels' case. And her family has worked with me to try to get copies of her uh, medical examiner's reports and things like that. Because wouldn't it be so interesting if, again, this very irregular, very rare size of duct tape was used in both cases? That would certainly, I think, be noteworthy to me. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Yes, and it sounds like you did far more investigating down that line of inquiry than maybe the investigators have done. I I can't speak for what's been done in, in the background, but that's the problem. If they're not willing to speak with the family or share things, at least with the family, in terms of what's been done on the investigation. But the fact that um, Anne McDaniel was partially burned, it just made me think about Kathy and Becky, that the perpetrator did try and set the vehicle and, and them alight, but unsuccessfully. So again, it's another question mark. It's another thing that should be explored. And these cases should be explored and reinvestigated together, particularly when there are Uh, forensic lines of investigation that can give us quite quick and simple answers, actually, if it were to be seen to be a priority. So fast forward us a little bit to, of course, you know, and I don't want to do these cases injustice, but I'm just conscious of your time, Catherine, perhaps, you know, you'll come back on maybe with Bill and we can talk about each of the cases in in detail and and share our thoughts, because I'm still learning things from you, which is why I wanted to to talk to you. What happened then with Lolly and Julie in terms of the investigation and, and where's it ended up? 
1997, a young man named Daryl David Rice, who was a computer programmer who lived outside of Baltimore, was in the park. His father lived just outside the park in Culpeper. Daryl Rice was an avid cyclist. He would regularly visit the park. In July of 1997, his life, by all accounts, was coming completely unraveled. He had struggled with bipolar schizophrenia all of his life. He had just been fired from a job. He had been up for three days smoking a fair amount of marijuana, and he was driving up and down the park and spied a female cyclist who was cycling alone on Skyline Drive and uh, harassed her, threatened her, ran her off the road. And she was able to protect herself and immediately seek help, which then sparked a, a, a chase low speed chase, we should say at that point, Daryl Rice was behind a tour bus. So, but, but the Rangers were able to apprehend Daryl Rice. And when they apprehended him, one of the first questions that he asked while he was in the car was, did you ever find the person who murdered those two girls? And in that moment, the combination of this violence he had perpetrated against the cyclist and his interest in Lolly Julie's case, he became pretty much the one and only suspect for that case. He was found guilty of attempted murder in the case of the cyclist. And so he did serve 11 years in a federal prison. And while he was there, the Rangers and the FBI really used that time to try to mount any potential case they could against Rice. They spent millions and millions of dollars, both in terms of having undercover agents acting as prisoners and put in Rice's cell, letter campaigns, Hours and hours of interviews that I've watched and are absolutely shocking to me, particularly given that that his his mental state and his sort of mental illness was well known at the time. Despite all this, they were never able to elicit a confession. They were never able to find any physical evidence pointing to Rice's involvement in Shenandoah. Yet he was indicted in the spring of 2002. It did at that point become the first federal capital hate crime in U.S. history. And then the charges were very quietly dismissed against Rice in 2004, using a little known legal concept called without prejudice, which means that the case can be brought back against Rice at any moment for any reason. And so, again, guilty or innocent, I can't say for certain, but but he does live in a state of double jeopardy where he can be brought back to a, a capital trial at any time. Yes. And you mentioned that millions of dollars were spent pursuing Rice. You actually detail an undercover operation that went on for for three years, where an undercover FBI agent was put in to speak with Rice. He became his sort of cellmate when he his case was being heard. So he started to form a relationship and then they continued writing to each other for a three-year period. That is a long period of time um, to invest heavily in an undercover operation like this. And he tried everything to elicit that confession, even manufacturing a crime that he said that he committed to try and get him to share information about what he did. And, and what was ironic to me was the fact that Rice was the one telling him that he should meditate and he needs to think before he acts and was trying to get distance from him. I mean, didn't reply to him for nine months. It was a very sophisticated undercover operation and yet still no sharing of information, no confession. Right, right. And then in these interviews, these hotel interviews that we have footage of, 
for me, never before seen footage of how the FBI handles its interrogations. They concocted an entire highly top secret intelligence unit of the federal government, um, which included spy satellites, infrared testing, all sorts of things like that. And and not only did they concoct reports and acronyms and uniforms and everything for this undercover organization, but they said, you know, based on all of this evidence, they were able to see exactly who did commit this murder. And you're you're watching Daryl Rice listen to all of this as they're saying to things to him like, well, you know, we have a chip in your tooth so that we can read your thoughts. And and we, you know that in addition to being able to read your thoughts with this chip, we have this highly secretive federal agency that's able to track the molecular whereabouts of humans. And, and Rice is like, well, that's great, right? I mean, that means you know, you know who did it. That's awesome. Like, I mean, you can see Rice almost trying to help them in the case, which again, I think from a sort of psychological profiling perspective is, is really pretty... I think he's either the most sophisticated serial killer who's ever lived, or he's just frankly innocent. Yes, and what a incredible undercover operation to invest in, and yet there are forensics. There are forensics in this case that can easily be tested. That's what was mind-blowing to me, just seeing that the basics haven't been done, but yet they plowed all this money into the sophisticated stuff. And That makes me angry because when I was trained at New Scotland Yard, I was always taught you do the basics well and the rest will follow before you even get to the sophisticated stuff. And when cases go wrong, it's because the basics haven't been done. And this just, you know, smacks to me of that. And it's deliberate, right? You know, we should say that that not only has evidence wallowed and languished in an evidence locker, but, but FBI agents made very deliberate decisions not to test evidence against a very viable suspect. And that decision has never been justified. And it's a decision that can, as you say, so easily and, and relatively inexpensively be rectified. Yes. And not to have a cliffhanger, but inadvertently we will have one because I do want to ask you about somebody who came up within this investigation that you have talked about in the book. And I, we haven't got time to cover it because you've got a class and I've kept you for longer. But I hope you'll come back, Catherine, and we can talk about what happened thereafter in terms of the investigation and, and what why there is uh, a viable suspect and just the detail of, of what's gone on and, and what still needs to be done. Absolutely. And again, I can't say how grateful I am to have your mind on this case. I really think that it's this kind of collaboration that leads to eventual conclusions for people. I do too. And I have to admit, revisiting the case and through your book, which I just devoured, and it's much harder for me to find reading time because of because of my baby and everything else, but I did devour it. And I, I do have a lot of questions and it has made me rethink some things. So I would really like the opportunity to talk to you again um, about Mark Evanitz in particular um, and about some of the outstanding things that still need to be done and also how my listeners can help. You know, this is still an open, active investigation, and that's important to say. We are committed to to finding answers. Lolly and Julie deserve that. So I just want to thank you for your pursuit, your tenacious pursuit um, and uncovering of the details that you have in this case, and also for, for doing the micro, the specifics of the case, and putting it into a context of the macro, which is really important, the other cases uh, that surround Lolly and Julie that are unresolved. In all their cases, the women and their families deserve justice. So I just want to thank you and I look forward to talking with you again. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you.
I'm jumping in here to wrap part two. There are a lot of cases to analyse, and it's important to me to do them justice. Now, as I said before, I really struggle with the term isolated incident, particularly at the start of an investigation, and yet I see it being used frequently by law enforcement. Male violence to women is often termed as an isolated incident, yet rarely is it the case in reality. Often, the pattern is missed, and the links aren't made, which means that serial perpetrators and serial killers are allowed to harm and kill more women, and that's not okay. It's vital that murders are thoroughly investigated and every hypothesis tested, rather than having tunnel vision and being fixated with one suspect, even when the evidence doesn't corroborate your hypothesis. Equally as important, one must consider the bigger picture – are there other rapes, murders or abductions that might have been committed by the same perpetrator? Now we get much more into this next week. Until then, be curious, ask questions and always trust your instincts. Here's my final two cents before the episode wraps. If you like what I do, please take two minutes to leave a five-star review wherever you listen to Crime Analyst or on the website www.crime-analyst.com. It really helps others find me and also helps with the ratings. Crime Analyst is written, produced and hosted by me, Laura Richards. Sound engineering by Jason Sheasley at Abridged Audio. Cover art and graphics by Chris Rowbottom at Syndicate and music by Kilrude.